0: professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway.
1: I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Matthew Renzi. Matthew is a data science consultant, author, and international public speaker. He has over two decades of professional experience working with tech startups to Fortune 500 companies. His current focus is teaching others artificial intelligence, data science, and machine learning. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you for having me. So uh, why don't you tell us how you got started in the industry and uh, give us a little bit of insight uh, there. So I started out as a software developer um, over two decades ago now, and
2: all of the projects that I had been working on um, in my career at that point in time were essentially big data or data science projects before there really was a term for data science. I mean, we were shipping hard drives through the mail and stuff to try you know, getting our data base updated. Uh, Rather, you know, back then we didn't have the internet connections that we have today. So um, I kind of uh, went as far as I could with my software development career and decided that I needed to go back to college in order to um, take my career to the next level. So I went back and I studied um, data science and machine learning. Well, technically, it was computer science and artificial intelligence. But As I as I got further into my career after college, I realized that there was this emerging trend that was being referred to as data science, and it essentially matched perfectly what I'd been doing my entire career so far. It was always um, I was always the person that was doing a data analysis rather than just trusting my gut and, you know, um, hoping that I made the right decision. And so I started doing consulting in the data science space, and this has eventually grown into more artificial intelligence consulting. So it's it, data driven AI is probably the best way to describe it, where we're essentially using data in order to train models and then solve you know uh, business problems. Uh, With machine learning, artificial intelligence and data science. And that's pretty much what I do today. I teach others how to make better, uh, teach others how to make better decisions with data, and then automate those decision making processes through artificial intelligence and machine learning.
1: That's crazy. So you've, you've really pretty much been in data science and AI your entire career.
2: Yeah, I've always seemed to be on kind of the cutting edge of whatever the next big wave was, whether that was by choice or by accident or kind of a, a hybrid of both. But um, it, it seems that I've always been in, in the right place at the right time and followed that, um, that path uh, to take me to the next big thing.
0: So in, in order to level set and, and make sure that we're all speaking the same language and, and getting a, a general vocabulary together, what is artificial intelligence or what can we classify as artificial intelligence?
2: Well, a lot of people have different definitions of artificial intelligence. The academic definition is essentially um, any machine that acts rationally in response to its environment that uh, can perceive its environment and then make a decision or choose an action that maximizes uh, some goal that it's trying to achieve. Whereas the general public typically thinks of AI more as anything that um, a human can currently do that a, a computer currently can't do which really isn't the the best definition since that's constantly sliding but essentially the example approach is probably one of the easiest ways for people to understand what ai is and what it isn't and that's you know essentially a computer that can play chess that's clearly a form of artificial intelligence um the you know uh, navigation software on your smartphone it's clearly a form of artificial intelligence your robot vacuum cleaner essentially figuring out how to um, uh, optimally vacuum your floor. Once again, artificial intelligence, and then we've got the ideas, um, you know, the, the futuristic stuff like uh, what we refer to as general AI, the sentient robots like R two D two and stuff like that. And that's that's a ways down the road, you know, at least a few decades until we can get to that form of like general, more flexible intelligence. But um, where we currently are right now is with artificial narrow intelligence, this um, set of AI tools that can solve a very narrow set of problems, and in many cases solve them quite well.
1: Now, I remember when I was uh, younger that there was all kinds of talk of of AI and, and you know, crazy sci fi movies in the 90s and, and even and even earlier than that with like a Space Odyssey and, and whatnot. But it, it all just kind of disappeared. Is is the current phase of AI that we're going through more or less a fad? Is it going to disappear or is this something that's that's not a fad?
2: Well, artificial intelligence, most people don't realize this, uh, dates all the way back to the 1950s. Um, there was an original uh, AI conference, um, I believe it was in Stanford, where some of the, 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 f- the main figures in AI got together to discuss this topic of intelligent machines. And After that, uh, artificial intelligence essentially went through um, a couple phases of hype and then like booms and then busts afterwards. So we saw what we refer to as the first AI winter somewhere in the 1970s until the early 80s. Um, or late 70s, early, or yeah, 70s until the early 80s, where essentially funding and research for artificial intelligence almost dried up because the expectations and the hype got so big that uh, the practical applications in reality just couldn't match the expectations. So people lost interest. It was a giant bubble. And then um, we saw the same thing happening in the 1980s um, during the era of what we call expert systems, uh, these machines that could do inductive reasoning and and, um, essentially understand Uh, kind of chained rules of logic Um, without going too much further into explaining how they work. Once again, we saw a whole bunch of hype about what they looked like they'd be able to do, but uh, the economics just didn't make sense. Um, They were very fragile. They would produce all sorts of um, wild uh, errors uh, given novel inputs and stuff. And we kind of saw a collapse of the industry again with that second AI winter. But then somewhere around in the early 2000s, uh, there were a few companies and pioneers in the er- area of AI, like Google and uh, some researchers, too, that that started to apply machine learning um, in rather creative ways or, or ways that started to make sense. In addition, we also saw you know, the amount of data we had available to train these algorithms increase. Um, we also um, saw the amount of compute power go up. And then uh, the algorithms got better, and we had a much more um, disciplined approach to uh, artificial intelligence, this new data science approach, and that led to the new boom that we're seeing right now. Whether we're actually about to enter a new uh, AI uh, winter, it's uh, difficult to say. But there are there are some pretty interesting trends that seem to indicate that we may be on a more stable kind of uh, increase to eventually having artificial general intelligence a few decades from now. But the future is extremely difficult to predict, especially with things like this. So um, I would say it's, it's quite likely we're on a relatively stable path right now, but I would not be surprised if five years from now we're also talking about, hey, remember how awesome AI looked? Well, yeah, now we're in a slump again.
1: So you mentioned, uh, you've mentioned uh, the term general a couple times. What is the, the difference between my Robotic Vacuum Cleaner or or my Amazon Echo and something like HAL 9000 or C-3PO?
2: Well, most people would classify the distinction as either artificial narrow intelligence or artificial general intelligence. So narrow AI is a type of artificial intelligence that can solve a very narrow set of problems. Um, we have the tools to solve a lot of very narrow uh, domains of knowledge right now. So like your vacuum, essentially figuring out how to vacuum your floor, or uh, voice recognition, uh, image classification, um, all of these very narrow tasks that we can um, solve with AI. And we can piece these things together to solve more complex problems, but it's not flexible or adaptable intelligence like we see with artificial general intelligence, where the machine is essentially capable of uh, adapting to whatever, uh, whatever you throw at it. And it can essentially apply knowledge from one domain across to another domain in very flexible ways so essentially you know a domestic robot that could essentially vacuum your floor for you and make your dinner and fold your laundry something that could essentially do all of these tasks with one ai or one brain essentially Uh, we haven't reached that level yet and that's that's what's still quite a ways off
1: how i mean you say quite a ways how far are we off from having uh Can't remember her name exactly. Susie or whatever from the (laughs) Jetsons.
2: Well, uh, once again, very difficult to predict, but there are a lot of experts that think we're going to hit it sometime right around 2050. Uh, Some experts think it's going to be earlier than that. Some think it'll be later. And some people say it's never going to happen. But um, I would say based on everything I've seen, it's it's probably going to be sometime around 2050 before we have a a general artificial intelligence uh, powerful enough uh, and flexible enough to essentially just do, you know, whatever task you ask it to do. If a human could do it, the AI will most likely be able to do it and most likely better than any human.
0: Yeah. It seems like combining a couple of different at home tasks, c- cooking and cleaning is, is quite a bit different than like the, the robot dog that I've seen at, at the, the labs where people try to push it over and it can get up and, and do different obstacles. So it seems like there's a, a big distinction between the the at-home AI tasks versus the truly autonomous, almost thinking, feeling, learning, growing.
2: And I think it largely has to do with the the technologies we have available, plus some other things, you know, the amount of uh, data we have to train these models, uh, the amount of compute power we have to improve the models over time, and, you know, the algorithms that we ha- have available in order to, um, to train these models. So, like right now, if you were trying to train, you know, um, an AI to... To detect whether you know it 's a coffee mug or whether it 's a glass so it it squeezes you know the, with the right amount of pressure, we would essentially just feed it a bunch of images of coffee mugs and the right tensile strength you need to use in order to pick up the coffee mug versus the piece of, you know the glass glass and and that 's a very narrow task, and, and the way we solve that 's very different than you know, essentially just telling a robot, hey, I need you to go you know, fold my laundry and it's never done it before. You know, it could look up a video of how it's done and essentially infer from seeing the video how one you know goes about folding laundry and, and to figure that out without uh, a large amount of training. And, you know, that's the direction we're going with artificial intelligence in the future, this idea of self-supervised learning or, um, you know, one-shot tasks where you just show it how to do something once and it essentially can figure it out based on all of the existing knowledge that it currently has but um there are some pretty good examples of that uh in very limited or uh constrained environments like right now we have um an a, a model called GPT-3 which is kind of the most cutting edge uh, natural language processing or generation model we currently have and it's um it's pretty impressive in the sense that you can essentially ask it to do something in text and then it will, and then show it like one example of what you want. Like say, for example, you want to translate this sentence from um, Spanish to English. Uh, You essentially just say, translate the sentence from Spanish to English. You show it one example of what a, that translation should look like. And then um, you just start giving it other sentences and it'll, it'll do the translation, which that's really impressive. Like we weren't even able to do that just a few years ago, but the fact that we have a language model so robust and so, powerful that it can actually understand the command that you're asking and then produce the results um, without having to learn that specific task individually is really impressive. In fact, if you guys get a chance, you should check out there's um, uh, it's a natural language bash prompt where you can essentially either type in bash commands or you type what you want in English and it will actually produce what it thinks is most likely what you're trying to execute. And then you just say yes no or modify the command and then it's essentially
1: running it for you. So you could just type, like, show me all the files in this directory, and then it should ls for you. Yep, it absolutely does that. That is awesome.
0: So you mentioned going out and, and finding models, where where we get to the artificial intelligence that knows enough to go and get the models. But I know that we, we've had some discussions before about the, the ethical issues of the models being fed into like a machine learning algorithm or something like that. Are there continued, and what are the ethical issues facing us today with artificial intelligence. Uh, there's actually
2: quite a lot of uh, potential ethical issues, not just um, in the future, but right now. Um, for example, we have um, – you guys have probably seen the deep fakes where we have essentially an algorithm generating what looks like you know, President Barack Obama saying something that he never actually said or from a, a previous speech and simulating the output. You know, there's a potential to use that in pretty nefarious ways if someone chose to use it. And we've actually seen it being used with voice, um, essentially faking a person's voice in order to um, – I think it was for embezzlement or something like that. That. They they pretended to be a CEO of a company, uh, used his voice and released you know the funds uh, into a bank account or something. So I mean we have to be really careful with how this technology is being used, and that's where somebody's maliciously doing it. Whereas there's a lot of accidental problems with AI as well. So as the old saying goes, you know garbage in, garbage out. If you feed a model. Uh, you know, if you feed the training algorithm, a bunch of biased data, it's going to produce a biased model. And if you feed it um, a bunch of uh, metrics that essentially correspond to like a a certain socioeconomic group or something like that, uh, you can accidentally reinforce, you know, uh, socioeconomic divisions in our society, simply by having a model that's Uh, Using your existing bias to further, you know, reproduce that bias going forward. And that that feedback loop can be really dangerous for society, especially when you think of the climate right now, we have a lot of people that essentially are um, uh, under a lot of pressure from a system that's, uh, you know, working against them. And so having algorithms also working against them. Uh, doesn't really allow them a whole lot of uh, measures for recourse. So we really don't want these uh, machine learning models to become black boxes that can't be questioned because if that happens, then, you know, how do you know it even made a fair decision? And if it made an unfair decision, how do you contest it in like a court of law?
1: Yeah, I recently heard about a, um, I wish I could remember the name of the group, but there's a there's a group out there that is using AI to actually detect those biases as far as uh, wage discrimination and police discrimination and things like that. I would assume it is possible, but do you think it's possible that that AI could also suffer its own confirmation bias and make it seem worse than it really is?
2: Potentially. Um, I think this is where, you know, the data science and artificial intelligence really play well together. If you build uh, an AI model, um, a machine learning model that's essentially making a prediction of some kind and you just use it assuming that it's always making the correct decision without any understanding of the underlying statistics or um, you know the the long term implications of the decisions it's making. You can get yourself in a lot of trouble and not even realize you're doing it. But if you have data science acting as kind of a checks and balances, um, you can do statistical analysis to see, hey, are these models actually producing decisions that are biased in a specific way or will lead to some kind of long-term negative consequence that we hadn't really seen in advance. And so I think that the two play very well together. And when you pull them apart and you you don't have them checking and balancing one another is where you end up in areas that can be potentially dangerous, where you might shoot yourself in the foot because you, you don't. Know enough about how the AI is actually making a decision to um, uh, to prevent it from making incorrect decisions or uh, long term negative consequences, and this is why you know it's very important that we invest the right amount of time in understanding um, what's going on under the hood with these machine learning models. And why I I recommend to my clients and to the people that I teach, you know, always use the simplest model that effectively solves a problem. Um, If you you know you can use a, a deep neural network to detect fraud. But if you can solve the same problem with something like a decision tree classifier, it's going to be way easier to explain to others why it made the decision it did. And if you ever have to go into a court of law to you know, say, well, why did you discriminate against this person? You can say, here's exactly why the machine made the decision that it did. Um, whereas if it's a giant deep neural network without some kind of explainable AI component – you have no idea. And good luck explaining to a judge, you know, how the the trillions of, you know, uh, linear algebra calculations and backpropagation led to it producing the result that it did.
0: Are we getting to the point where those complex neural networks that are needed for larger decisions, are, are we getting to the point that they can actually explain how they've got, how they arrived at those results or... Yeah, explainable AI is a, a relatively new kind of
2: area of research, or at least it's it's becoming a bit more mainstream as as people recognize the the need for this. Um, there's certain techniques we can use in order to 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 I don't know if it's right to say to teach the model how to explain what it's doing, but for example, if you were trying to detect uh, breast cancer, um, you'd feed a bunch of images of mammograms into the algorithm. And it would then make a prediction as to whether somebody has breast cancer or not and just give you a a number, the likelihood that what I'm seeing in this image is cancer or not. Um, But what you can also do is you could feed in a doctor's explanation in text with each of those images saying why the doctor said that this contains, you know, this image contains breast cancer. And through a combination of the image processing and the natural language processing, the model essentially learns not only to make a prediction about what, um, you know, the likelihood is that there's cancer, but formulates a sentence in. English explaining why it believes that's the case. And now there's still there's a lot of magic happening in there, but at least you're getting something that that that's a plausible English explanation as to why that decision was made. And that's you know better than having nothing. But there's also more advanced things we'll eventually be able to do in terms of diagnostics to look at the model and see, you know, was there something that that has led it astray in this direction or not um, that we can then correct in the future? So it's a pretty active area of research right now, and I think we're gonna see a lot of really powerful stuff come out, especially as the issues with using these models without um, any kind of explanation becomes more important.
1: Well, I think the, the scenario that you just described is, is probably to me, one of the best uses of AI taking an error prone process that's, that's really relying on the judgment of the doctor and reducing it down to a quantitative decision being made, uh, especially if the AI can, can explain why it made that decision. I would I would hope that we would get that good enough that it could greatly reduce the error rate and uh, save a whole bunch of lives.
2: Yeah, I think we'll see it being used um, in in two different ways in, in this specific scenario. So in one case, these machines will eventually get better than any human doctor at doing certain ki- kinds of diagnoses. Um, for example, the machines are currently better at diagnosing microfractures, which are very difficult to see in x-rays. Um, They can do certain types of brain cancer diagnostics where they're not just looking at a single image at a time like a human doctor does. They're looking at all of the data in all of the slices and all of the densities at the same time to see correlations across the dimensions of data, something a human doctor just simply can't do because they can't visualize a two-dimensional chart in, you know, four-dimensional space as they're looking at both uh, three dimensions and the the density, the slices of density – um and so you know they'll they'll get better than human doctors in certain categories but i don't think we're going to see that you know the human doctors just disappear at least not overnight and that's because um when you pair a human doctor with an ai you end up with something that's even more powerful than just an ai or a doctor alone and i think that's what we're going to see at least in the the transitionary period where these ai and doctors will you know essentially look at the same data and they'll make a decision. And if the AI and the doctor agree with one another, then they'll move forward with the procedure. And if the AI and the doctor disagree, they'll probably pull in another doctor um, who doesn't know what decision the AI or the human doctor made to act as a tiebreaker in this scenario so that, um, you know, you're essentially acting as a checks and balances for these AI processes. And I think that, uh, the, that type of situation is what we're going to see happen, at least in the medical industry in the, the near future. You won't just eliminate doctors overnight. Um, but at some point in time, you know, when we get to a level of general AI, then even doctors may not be necessary.
0: It's good to hear the, the level of, of detail, being fed into these systems and, and the thought being used to, to devise these systems. Because I can imagine feeding a collection of two-dimensional images to to AI and, and coming out with people with tattoos have cancer or something, <laughs> something ridiculous like that without truly understanding that there's so much more data and, and information being fed into the systems. I grew up largely on television and movies, so I, I have a, a great want and, and need for like a utopian kind of Star Trek world where where we're we're all benefiting from advanced computer networks and things like that. But I also have seen Terminator and and fear Skynet. So I, I much would prefer a utopian type society of Star Trek, but how do we get there without being in danger of releasing Skynet into the world? Are there are there checks and balances in place? Do we need to be aware of the types of problems that we might incur or, or develop ourselves?
2: Well, in the short term, we've got a lot of potential issues that we're going to have to deal with, and, and they largely revolve around um, humanity and conflict with technology in terms of things like a democracy. How does democracy function um, in a world where you've got constant and pervasive surveillance and the ability to manipulate people? Going very far down in the future, you know, there's really only three paths forward for humanity and our technology. You know, either um, humanity and technology, our AI, uh, peacefully coexist forever, um, or we end up um, accidentally destroying ourselves first, or the AI essentially displaces us, making us obsolete like in the Terminator scenario, Or we essentially merge with our technology in such a way that uh, humanity and technology are indistinguishable for one another. So the first scenario uh, that we peacefully coexist doesn't seem very likely. If you look at historical scenarios, uh, sufficiently advanced civilizations always seem to displace the indigenous population. We've just seen it time and time happen again. Um, And so I don't think we'll peacefully coexist with AI forever unless um, it stays uh, relegated to essentially being the ship's computer and not, you know, uh, competing with us directly in in uh, I don't know the kind of general AI tasks. Um, the other uh, other possibility that we destroy ourselves first or AI essentially displaces us probably a lot more likely in the long run. Um, but not very good for us if that happens so the most hopeful and likely of the outcomes is that we essentially merge with our technology in such a way that um, there really is no distinction between ai and human and now this sounds really far-fetched when you're just you know thinking about it today but i mean the cell phones in our hands are already an extension of our brain and uh, the next generation is essentially ready and willing to have that technology directly connected to their minds if and when it becomes available. And in the very, you know, within the next 10 years, uh, based on what I'm seeing, uh, we're going to be augmenting with, uh, you know, augmented reality glasses that will just look like a regular set of glasses. And, uh, you know, we've already got our earbuds in and... Um, you know, wearable devices on us. So we're already augmenting our human bodies with a lot of technology and it will eventually get to the point, you know, where we'll have brain-computer interfaces. That doesn't seem like it's unrealistic anymore anymore. Uh, that we'll see brain-computer interfaces in another 20, 30 years or something like that. And at that point in time, you know, we're not that far away from essentially just being one in the same with our technology. But that's the way we essentially get out of uh, destroying ourselves with the technology or the technology destroying us, is that, you know, if you're the same thing as the technology, then there's nothing really to destroy.
1: So the best hope for our future is to become the Borg. (laughs)
2: yeah um it sounds it sounds uh uh pessimistic when you put it that way but um let's let's hope it's a bit more uh star trek like than uh borg like
1: i I would hope that for the most part ai sticks to kind of the narrow field and it's specialized to do one thing and in the cases where we do use general ai that it's i don't know maybe not smart enough to realize that it's better than us (laughs) Yeah, I so the
2: the main problem with this is that once we hit artificial general intelligence without some pretty significant constraints on it um, it has the ability to iteratively self-improve, which leads to what we call artificial superintelligence very fast. And artificial super intelligence has no biological constraints like the human mind does. So its ability to improve itself and to think in ways that humans couldn't even possibly conceive of thinking and to think many steps ahead of us means that um, we, we would just have no ability to compete with this thing uh, if and when it, it does reach a level of superintelligence.
1: Well, thankfully that's at least a few years off. Yeah. Yeah. We got a little bit of time yet. We got some,
2: we got some other issues we have to deal with right now anyways.
1: So before we get there, um, in the, the presentation that you have on YouTube, you mentioned the risk to certain careers jobs as, as developers. Is our job at risk? What, what do we need to do to prepare ourselves for, for this AI future?
2: Well, in looking at the entire landscape of labor, you know, we know that there are some jobs that are going to be relatively easy to automate. Um, I mean, when you think about the jobs we've already automated, uh, they had uh, very similar properties about them. They're uh, repetitious. uh, They're low complexity they're dangerous enough that the cost you know, to life is, is high enough that it's worth investing in um, and a few other aspects as well, too. So you can start to see a profile of jobs that will be easy to automate as the technology becomes there because it's all driven by economics. And then we see jobs that are more difficult to automate. So jobs that require creativity, uh, compassion, empathy, uh, establishing trust. Once again, this is why it's, it's unlikely the doctors will disappear anytime soon because you know if a pr- human doesn't trust the A.I., they trust the doctor who can essentially establish that trust and you know, explain to them and be compassionate and understanding. So we're going to see a large subset of jobs in the middle, though, that will not entirely be automated. But a lot of the uh, monotonous mechanical aspects of the job will be automated. And so I think software developers fall in kind of that that middle space as well, where there's going to be certain things that we do as developers that will just kind of it almost disappear overnight, but it'll be a tool that essentially replaces it. Like think about IntelliSense. You know, a few years ago, if you would have shown a developer IntelliSense, it, it would have blown their mind. Like the idea that the machine could predict what I was going to type, like that's crazy. And now we've got like with the, the uh, Turing, let's see, Microsoft's, Turing NLG model, and once again, with GPT-3 this ability for it to predict not just the next word we're going to type, but the entire block of code based on all of the code we've typed before that. And so, you know, we're going to feel like we've got superpowers as software developers, and that's essentially just going to make one software developer uh, significantly more effective or efficient or powerful um, than we were just a few years ago. And, you know, even tasks like right now, regular expressions, this is when I'm just waiting for it to be automated. You know, every, every software developer I know hates writing regular expressions, but we have tools now that you can feed in the input data and what you want it to look like, or, you know, what you want to capture from it. And you just give it a few examples and it can build or synthesize the regular expression from those input output pairs. And we can do the same thing with data transformations now too, where here's what the data looks like. Here's what I want it to look like give it enough examples, it synthesizes a model, and anytime you see an outlier, you just give it that, you know, the correction to it, and it builds that model. So, like, this is something that a software developer might have spent, you know, like, days, you know, building um, a data transformation pipeline, and now it's essentially just, here's the input, Here's the output, give it enough examples, and then give it additional examples when it doesn't behave how you want it to. And and so as software developers, I think a lot of the things that we do in our job are going to disappear. But I hate to say it, most of them are things we really don't want to be doing as software developers anyways. But I think software developers are still going to be around for quite a while because most companies are going to still want a human being uh, in that pipeline or that, that, that loop somewhere. But I think our jobs are going to become more about managing software and tools and babysitting essentially algorithms than it will be about the kind of pure creative um, flow of r- writing code. Um, we'll just, we'll be solving these problems. We just won't be using the same set of tools or solving them in the same way that we did.
0: It seems like the, the last 10 years or so has been spent automating all of the boring, mundane tasks. So, so we've got build and release pipelines. We've got test automation and unit tests and, and UI tests and, and everything under the sun in that genre. So we've, we've automated all the mundane. It, it sounds like now it's automating the difficult and predicting the, the next steps is, is the next logical iteration.
2: Yeah, and I think that's how we're going to see this technology evolve in in pretty much not just software developer space, but in all occupations. Um, we'll continue to automate the, the things that make sense economically. And it's, you know, is it a simple task? Is it repetitious? Is it monotonous? Is it, um, you know, uh, high risk? Is it error prone? Is it dangerous? Like all of these factors that, you know, add to the cost uh, half of the equation. And then we just essentially look at the value proposition. Well, how much money would we save if we automated the build pipeline instead of having Bill have to push the button at night, you know, to... to Uh, To release the or to go through the manual steps or process. And we'll do that with all of these different occupations and and pieces of jobs will disappear. But you're not just going to see, you know, whole classes of jobs disappear overnight. Like even, you know, fully autonomous semis, which I think is going to be one of the biggest shocks to our economy when this happens um is still going to have human drivers in the semis for quite a while but once again their job is going to be changing from driving the semi to essentially managing the software and babysitting the semi the 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 machine itself
1: in preparing for um ai how do we how do we go about educating ourselves in the proper way for the future
2: well it, it comes down to a few different things. I, I think first there's a basic level of AI literacy that everyone in society needs to have in order to function in the new world. Same thing with the previous technology revolutions. Like if you, um you know, before the automobile, if you didn't understand that walking out into the street with an automobile was a dangerous thing, you probably wouldn't last very long. And you know, we're going to have the same kind of uh, situation with artificial intelligence. Like everyone in society is going to have to have a basic level of understanding of how this stuff works in order to function in the world. You won't need to know how the, internal combustion engines from the ground up, um, you know, in the same way, you won't need to learn how a deep neural network functions from the ground up. But you do need to understand things like if I push on the accelerator, it goes, if I push on the brake, it stops, like that kind of level of knowledge uh, from the outside. Um, And then beyond that, you need to figure out how you actually want to use AI, like what is your objective? So are you planning on, you know, training AI models for your company? Do you just want to build applications with uh, pre-built AI models? Or do you just want to use these tools in order to become more effective at your day-to-day job? So depending upon which path uh, you choose for your career, there's various learning paths or curriculums that are ideal for what you're trying to do. So, for example, if you want to learn how to train AI models, you're going to need to understand machine learning and you're going to need to understand um, uh, data science as well. And if you want to, you know, develop AI applications, you're going to have to understand programming and how these third-party AI models work. But if you just want to use AI to improve, you know, your overall productivity and efficiency, um, you, you won't require anything other than basic, you know, AI literacy plus the knowledge of how to use those specific tools in your specific job. And, you know, beyond that, um, you know, it's just practice, uh, you know, doing this stuff. It, it's one thing to, to to know what a neural network is, but it's a very different thing to know how to use a neural network to detect fraud. And so, you know, without actually practicing these things on a daily basis, um, you, you won't you know, be able to uh, to use them in production and stuff like that.
0: With that, do you have any preferred resources that you can recommend to us?
2: Well, I always like to recommend my website, but um, <laughs> my website, I have uh, tons of free articles and videos. Um, I've got a free course uh, on this topic specifically that I should have finished by the end of this month. Um, so by July 1st, there should be the uh, Preparing Your Career for uh, AI course on my website. And then I teach a lot of courses on Site. So if you're a software developer, or an IT professional, and you just want to learn how to use specific technologies, you know, uh, at work the next day, that's a great place to go for that kind of education or information. Um, if you, you know, are if you're just starting out, you don't have any programming experience and you've got a long way to go. Uh, there are probably better uh, resources in terms of academic knowledge. Um, but you know, if, if you want to invest the time and money to go back to college and study machine learning and AI from the ground up, by all means, that's what I did. Um, but for a lot of people, they just need to just need to figure out how do I use this um, computer vision. Feature to classify this image so that I can make the rest of my application do what it needs to do. And for that kind of stuff, you don't have to go back to college for that. We we we're to a point now where so many of these AI tools are so easy to program for a software developer. And so... Um, I don't know what the right word is, but you don't have to understand how they work from the inside out in order to get good, reliable results from them, um, that, that we're now at kind of a a turning point in the industry where you don't have to have a data scientist in order to solve a a specific problem. Uh, you just feed the data into auto ML and it essentially produces, uh, the, you know, the best model given the data it's seen or, um, probably a, a more, um, realistic scenario is, um, you've got, um, like say for example, product, uh, detection. So you've got like a Twitter feed and you just need to figure out, um, any image in your newsfeed that, uh, contains your company's product or logo and you just want to flag it. Like that's something you can now do without any machine learning experience. You essentially just take a pre-trained model. Um, you transfer learning, uh, use transfer learning on it. So essentially you're just, um, you're feeding it a couple examples of your logo and then you, Code the input from the Twitter feed uh, using a REST API with any programming language. Don't even need to know R or Python. You can do it with any language you want. And then it's going to spit out a prediction. What is the statistical likelihood that this image contains Uh, your company's logo. And if it's above that certain threshold, then you kick it out to the, you know, uh, wherever the image is going. And if it doesn't, uh, if it's lower than the threshold, then you don't. So we're at a really interesting time for software developers to be getting into this, uh, you know, into the AI space right now in ways that you just couldn't have done, you know, even a few years ago.
1: One of the things that we like to ask all of our guests is for them to provide some of the wisdom that they've gathered over the years to new developers just getting started or developers that maybe have been developing for a while but are looking for a way to level up their career. What might you say to those individuals?
2: I think for me, making an investment in your education, your career is probably the smartest thing you can do right now. The best software developers I've ever met and the, the ones, I, this, since this is a six-figure developer, the ones that are all making six figures um, are all people that seem to uh, enjoy learning. And not just enjoy learning, they have a, a desire to continue staying up to date and learning new things. And not just learning the right things, but also learning what things not to do. Like you can be in software architecture and have this, you know, great idea for you know a piece of software or an architecture for um for software. But if you haven't seen all of the ways that it can fail, you don't know what the alternatives are and you can essentially paint yourself in a corner. And I've seen that happen time and time again. So invest in your education and invest in your career. Make sure you're working for somebody who truly values you as a human being, not just a resource, and is willing to invest in you and your development as well. Because there's a lot of really good companies out there, and there are even more companies that are not great in in the way that they treat software developers. And for me, um, if if you're someone that's on the verge of um, making a career switch, historically, every time I've made that career switch has been a positive result. I have never regretted switching companies when I finally made that decision. And the turning point for me almost every time was that um, I was no longer learning. Like if I was in a a job or position where I didn't feel like I was learning something new every day, that was my clue to move on. And every time I did, it was the right thing to do. So yeah, just be investing um, in your own education and your career uh, path going forward. I think that's probably the best thing you can be doing right now.
1: Excellent advice, thank you. So if anybody wanted to uh, reach out to you to, to maybe get some more information about AI, uh, do you have any social media accounts that they could use to contact you?
2: Yeah, the best way to get a hold of me is typically through my website. Um, I have links to every social media account that I'm active on, um, on the website and also a form you can fill out if you just want to send a quick message. Um, but I encourage you to engage with me. Um, you know, send me tweets on social media or um, ask questions. Um, I've also got discussion forums for all the courses that I have. So I get a lot of questions about the the very specific topics from people that are watching those courses as well. So MatthewRinzi.com is where you find me. Um, I'm also on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn as well.
0: All right. Thanks, Matthew.
1: Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. That was Matthew Rinzi. Matthew is a data science consultant, author, and international public speaker. He has over two decades of professional experience working with tech startups to Fortune 500 companies. His current focus is teaching others artificial intelligence, data science, and machine learning. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Six Figure Dev. This has
0: been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash.